The first reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Romans, which is Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another, and another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, said the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading is uh, taken from Matthew 18. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement... A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. 
And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the gospel of the Lord. So may I speak in the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I think you were telling me, Carol, that you had a prom mm. here last night. Mm. We, uh, in Whitney, we live just around the corner from a secondary school, and every year we experience the phenomenon of the school prom. The green outside the school is full of young people, attired in glamorous evening dress, shrieking and greeting their arriving friends who pour out of ridiculously elongated stretch limos. I think they're ghastly American imports, and they never had them in our day. We had to do with drinking Cherryade, not even Matthias Rosé, and dancing around our handbags at the local disco, a place our teachers didn't even know exist. Last year, it was the turn of one of my friend's daughters to attend her school prom, and I paid a visit to the family in the run-up to the big day. What a fuss. The daughter had been up to London to buy a prom dress and she'd come back home with two. She was in the process of agonising about which of her friends would make up her particular party and whether they should hire a limo. She didn't specify who'd pay for this, by the way. She tried on the dresses so that we could help her decide which one of the two to wear. She looked lovely in both of them but it was clearly vital for her to choose the right one for the occasion. I asked her why. I won't forget her response for a long time. She said, because if you get it wrong, they will judge you. If you go with the wrong boy, or wear the wrong dress, or carry the wrong bag, or arrive in the wrong car, you will be judged and found wanting. My heart went out to her. What was supposed to be a fun evening was, to her mind at least, more like the running of a kind of social gauntlet. I think some of this young girl's angst was simply the expression of a particularly painful teenage self-consciousness that we can all perhaps remember and with which we can identify But I also think she had a point. Human beings are very good at judging each other. It seems to come naturally to us, and it's nothing new. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exhorts his followers not to judge. And in the extract from Romans that we had for our first reading, Paul sees fit to reiterate Jesus' command and indeed to expand on it. 
there must have been quite a lot of judgment going on in those first Christian communities. Perhaps this should not surprise us because of all groups, it's religious folk who have the reputation, which is probably well-deserved, it's supported by empirical evidence, that it's religious folk who are the most judgmental. But why do we feel the need to judge? One reason is that it makes us feel better about ourselves if we can place ourselves above somebody else. (coughs) That's perhaps why judging is of such concern to teenagers who often have quite shaky or embryonic developing self-esteem. If I can say her bag or her dress or her hair is wrong, then I can feel somewhat better about my own appearance. But judging is not just about self-esteem. It's also an issue of identity. It's about working out who we are as individuals and also in terms of which tribe we belong to and what position we hold in that tribe. Again, this is of course a big issue for young people who are seeking an identity beyond their family of origin. But the issue of tribal identity is not confined to the young. It affects us all. To belong to a tribe, you not only have to look the part, you have to say and do the right things. In terms of style and in terms of morals. The moral framework we adopt is part of our identity. I belong to a tribe in so far as I abide by its rules, and as I live out the rules of my tribe, I somehow become more fully myself. We can think of churches as tribes. They are communities that help us to shape our identities by offering us a network of relationships to which we can belong and a set of rules to live by. But one of the problems faced by the churches through history has been that unlike the situation with the Jewish law of Jesus' day, we have been given a good deal of freedom as to how we actually live out the rules of our tribe. The New Testament writers tend to talk in terms of principles, virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, rather than giving detailed instructions that cover every situation we may face. This means that there is room for different interpretations of the Gospel and the potential for conflict. The current difficulties, the current difficult debates on gay marriage in the Church of England illustrate this well. There are genuine differences in understanding the right way to live the Christian life among the different factions in this debate. What they have in common is a concern with identity. Some believe that if you change the rules on this, you will fundamentally change the identity of the church that has stood for centuries. 
And because our individual identity as Christians is so bound up with our identity as church, this is a threat to our very sense of self. Others believe that if you change the rules, you will finally be true to the deep principles and identity of the church, so that those who have felt excluded from the Christian tribe for centuries will at last be able to be themselves, to come out and to come home. There are all sorts of passions driving this debate, but I think the deepest ones are the fear of losing authentic identity and true belonging in some, and the longing for authentic identity and true belonging in others. Personally, and in typical Anglican fashion, I have sympathy with both sides of the debate. Perhaps, in the end, I will reach a settled position on it. But what seems clear from the New Testament is this. When I do reach a position, I must not rush to judge others. This is always a real and present danger because judging makes me feel better and anything that makes me feel better is going to attract me, like Matthias Rosé. My conviction that I am right strengthens my sense of who I am, which is good. But its flip side is a certainty that others are wrong. I get to feel more secure about myself when I focus on how wrong they are. This strong tendency to judge is, as I've said, a basic part of human nature, what the New Testament refers to as the flesh, something that makes us vulnerable to sin. Healthy, vigorous debate about an issue can and does all too easily turn into quarrelling, despising and judging. This divides and hurts the body of Christ. We must resist this natural and insidious temptation to judge at all costs. Judgment, says Paul, is for God alone. In the passage we heard from Romans 14, Paul is actually talking about disagreements over diet and the church calendar, which may seem significantly less contentious than my example of gay marriage, though probably not at the time. But I think the principles that he brings to bear on these, perhaps lesser issues, are general and they apply to the Christian life at every level. The first of these principles is Christian unity. Throughout his letters, Paul stresses the vital importance of the unity of the body of Christ. He is adamant that anything that leads to factions, mini-tribes who mutually despise each other, is anathema to Christ, the head of the body. This is why Paul is so apparently judgmental himself, when he's writing to the Galatians about circumcision. Circumcision is an external marker that, like the right dress, the right bag, or the stretch limo, 
makes it easy for us to judge who is in and who is out. And so Paul will have none of it. Secondly, like Jesus in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Paul tells us to focus on our own relationship with God and not to get distracted by trying to rate God's relationship with others. As so often, C.S. Lewis puts this rather well towards the end of his book, one of my favourites, The Horse and His Boy. You'll probably remember that when the hero, Shasta, asks Aslan about his relationship, Aslan's relationship with the heroine, Aravis, Aslan says this, Child, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. I'm sure he's drawing on Romans 14 as he wrote that. Thirdly, and again, like Jesus before him, Paul stresses that it's the motives that drive people. Motives only known to God that determine the worth of their actions. The key principle in Christian living is a sincere and humble willingness to honour the Lord. Even if this sometimes lands people in actions that seem less than worthy, Paul insists that God is able to raise these people up so that they stand tall nevertheless. We see here that sincerity of motive is really important. But on its own, it's not sufficient. The sincerity has to be directed towards honouring the Lord. But what does that mean? In his justly famous passage from 1 Corinthians 13, Paul helpfully sets out the ways that we might recognise actions that are driven by a true desire to honour the Lord. Agape actions. These are marked, he says, by an attitude of patience, kindness, endurance, hope, faith, a desire for truth, and perhaps above all, self-sacrifice for the greater good of others. This attitude honours Christ because it's in complete conformity with his character. Diametrically opposed to it, says Paul in 1 Corinthians, is an attitude that shores up one's own sense of self by denigrating others through envy, arrogance, boastfulness, rudeness, self-centeredness, hostility and schadenfreude. That smug pleasure we can sometimes feel when those of whom we disapprove get into trouble. For example, when my friend's prom dress turns out to be a disaster. In short, a judgmental attitude. So to sum up, as a Christian, my identity is not determined by setting myself against those who do not belong to my tribe. Whether they be Christians, I consider weaker than myself, or people of other faiths, or those of no faith. My identity is determined by one thing only, 
my relationship with Christ, who, to quote Paul one last time, has shown us that love, not rules, is the fulfilment of the law. Amen.